Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? Welcome to Death by DVD with Hank. I am your host, Hank. That was kind of flat. That didn't really do much. Um, we're trying to sell this. We've got to dress this up. We need like a theme. You know, all, all the other shows have something. You've got the game show, uh, King of the Basement. You've got the the debate thing, Cinema Blood Sport. This we gotta we gotta theme this up. Hank show. You know, I mean, because like talk shows have a whole thing, and uh, you know, like the View. The View has a, a thing. They um they all come out and they 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 view stuff. I'll be honest with you, I have never seen an episode of The View, so uh, we'll we'll move on. But you know, like coffee talk. You know, like a thing. Like people, you know, they they sit around, they 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 coffee talk. What do we? Can we do that? Can we like cue up some coffee talk music and do like a coffee talk thing? And you know, let's try it again. Let's let's do it again with coffee talk. All right. It's time now for coffee talk with Hank. Welcome to Coffee Talk. I'm your host. Hank, the world's greatest, and uh, we're going to talk about movies. We're going to do a double feature, because I think that's snazzy. I really like that, and we're going we're gonna to talk about movies and have some coffee, because it's coffee talk. So on tonight's double feature, I hope you like Dean Martin, because we're not going to talk about him. We're going to talk about Robert Mitchum, who uh, really doesn't look much like Dean Martin at all, but they both enjoy drinking. I don't know how long I'm going to be able to keep that up. I don't know. All right, maybe that was a... It was a good idea, but it was executed poorly. What's another one? What uh, you know, because it's 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 audio, so it's gotta you know have a thing. People gotta be able to follow it. How about like like something raw, you know, like uh, you know, like talk radio, like uh, like you know Eric Bogosian, like that that kind of thing. Um, can we do that? Can we like do like a talk radio? You know, and those used to be pretty popular. You know, just abrasive, sort of gritty talk about oh we can like you know do some politics or something get some talk radio music do that yeah do a talk radio intro all right Welcome to Death by DVD with with Hank, and uh, now I got some uh, got some things grinding my gears. We're gonna well, let's let's do that. Grind my gears, and uh, well, let's let's talk about it for a little bit. So what's up with all these people that uh you know get, they get in the cars and they they talk on their phones to themselves and they they put it on YouTube? What's what's going on with that? You know, uh, you know the, yeah. All right, fuck. I sound like Andrew Dice Clay. That's we can't uh, just cut all that. We can't do that. Sound like Andrew Day. Well, I didn't curse enough and and light anywhere near many enough cigarettes to sound like Andrew Day's Clay. Little Miss Moffat sat on a toffet and she sucked my dick, motherfucker, motherfucker. Yeah, mom, 
motherfucker. Now I sound like Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, we can't keep any of that. That's fucking horrible. This is all horrible. Uh, man, this is a bad idea. All of this, this entire thing. Ah, fuck it. All right, let's just do uh, nah, let's just 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 do it. Let's just take it from the top. Um, you know, and that was I, I didn't want this to be a, a a normal show. This was you know death by DVD with Hank. It needed to have some pizzazz, but I guess we're pizzazzless. Eleven years pizzazzless. It's a disorder, and it's nothing to be made fun of. You can check it out for yourself. Pizzazzless. All right, here we go. Welcome to Death by DVD. I am your host, Hank, the world's greatest. Hollywood Hank, the world's greatest. Howlin' Mad, Hollywood Hank's the world's greatest. This is getting to be too much. Getting to be a lot. Um, but we're, you know, we'll keep tacking it on. I like it for now. Howlin' Mad, Hollywood Hank, the world's greatest. That's a name. And there's something in a name, I guess. Or is there? What is in a name? Because we don't even, what is this? Death by DVD with Hank. What a, a flat fucking name. What I like about regular shows is I have a minute to uh, to light a cigarette while I, Alexander Nash usually says something uh, negative about me, which is, I don't know. I like to think that I'm America's sweetheart, and that's not a title that I came up with. I guess we can put that in, in everything. Howlin' Mad Hollywood Hank, America's Sweetheart, the world's greatest. I don't remember who came up with that. It, it might have been Shot on Shidio, our number one fan out there, Vicky. Um... You can follow her on Instagram, shot on shitio. I don't know, but I am America's sweetheart, and I, I think that's something that definitely should be evaluated as we get into my solo work. And and what is that? What is into uh what what's a solo show? Obviously it's not a place where I can fucking light a cigarette. But we don't have the sandpaper abrasive Alexander Nash here, and uh he's fine. I think on a Death by DVD classic recently, I said something about his genitalia being mauled by uh, small show poodles or something of the likes, but he, he legitimately is fine. This entire space, Death by DVD with Hank, uh, more or less, uh, these movies aren't necessarily movies that wouldn't be on Death by DVD, and, and maybe someday some of the ones I cover and talk about very well may appear on the show themselves, but... I have a completely different taste than Alexander Nash, and although both of us are very similar in thoughts sometimes, and uh, a lot of the fun of the show is us bantering back and forth and our different opinions on, on various subjects. I mean, we've originated with horror movies, and that's kind of what made Death by DVD was exploitation films and horror films and the underground, and as time has gone on and we've gotten older, I think it's just uh, an encompassment of film in general and movies in general and whatever we happen to have seen and, and want to talk about or have a debate about or whatever the specialty show is. We do a game show, King of the Basement, where we quiz each other and uh, definitively figure out who is the King of the Basement. I believe Alexander Nash uh, has won that uh, for the first time in like six years of us playing it. And again, you got to remember, a lot of these were live episodes, the old school format of Death by DVD. Uh, you know, we uh, were a live show for right up to our 10th uh, anniversary, and we now are, or whatever, we're recording in a Death by DVD studio in any town, USA, and, and the comforts of a, a deluxe studio. Um, I, Alexander Nash, actually records via satellite because he insists on almost always being nude, and it makes the everyone generally uncomfortable and you know and i have i have no fault in that but at the same time you know you, the hair gets in the recording equipment and 
You can't figure out if it's from somebody's beard or, or it's it's a hard knock life. So um, where was I at? I was talking about the solo show, right? So the whole point why we're getting into this, not into Alexander Nash's nudism, is more or less I, I just need a place to be Hank. Sometimes I got some things that I, I want to bring up. There's more or less uh, movies that I want people to know about. There's movies that I see and I go, damn, I want to talk about that. But it's not something that has a, a full place being debated or yelled about or whatever. You know, we just recently finished the best of 1980, turned it into a two-part episode, and you get kind of bored. After a while, you got to follow rules doing segmented shows or, or specialty shows and we've uh, given ourselves these own rules so we try to fit inside of them and make things work for whatever format we're trying to do and I see things that I, I definitely want people to see and that's one of the I guess hard parts about loving movies is you you constantly see things and sometimes you just don't have the friends to, to tell people or you don't have the audience to tell people that's where this completely comes full circle. I demand a goddamn audience, and I guess we'll quote the king of Marvin Gardens here. A literary audience is dead. People don't read anymore. I demand a literary audience, was the quote from uh, the king of Marvin Gardens, a great movie with Drew Stern and Jack Nicholson. People just don't read anymore, and that formerly was how you, you, you went out of your way to get people to hear a movie, or to hear... To, to uh, get movie reviews, you know, it had to be in some form of literature, and, you know, Starlog still exists, but who's going out there and picking it up, and by no means do I mean this as an insult to anyone that writes, because if you know me, and you follow me, you know I do uh, just as much writing as I do chattering and bullshitting on Death by DVD, um, so not much, not much at all. Ha ha! Insert a little drum roll, funny sound effect thing, you know, the rim shot thing? Throw that in there. But... When you have an audience, which, to an extent, we do with Death by DVD, why not take full use of that? Why uh, why not abuse you guys a little bit? Put you through some hell. And that's not my intention by any means. I don't think uh, this virginal episode... Virgin, is that... That wouldn't be what you say. Virginal episode. Inaugural? I guess? Yeah, this inaugural episode... I mean, if you listen to Death by DVD, if you know the, the goddamn history, if you've been a fan for a while, you've heard me do some solo shows before, which were probably just as awful as this uh, is going and, and will continue being. But uh, those were usually 30-minute formats. They were done live. I'd stick to one subject. Tonight, we're going to do a double feature. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll actually get to talking about a movie at some point once we, we finish up with, with this chatter. And the, the whole explanation, this dragging, awful, grinding explanation of why uh, this show exists. And uh, reminding you that I, Alexander Nash, still has his genitalia and all of his limbs and will be returning for, uh, you know, Death by DVD in general. Uh, there's just some different things going on, and I, I like to be able to shine a different light in different directions and to talk about different things. A lot of the times, uh, like I had referenced, with rules and regulations and things that we instill on the show with ourselves, there just isn't room for certain things. And, uh, you know, sometimes, just being honest, Alexander Nash does not care to go out of his way to find movies uh, that aren't free. So I get boxed in when I see something from the mid-70s or early 70s that is a little less known, or uh, on a recent episode, something like Bad Timing, 
It, it took two weeks to get that underway just because Nash wouldn't watch it. But I digress, and now I'm here. And this is going to be uh, the new episode. This is what you guys waited a whole week to hear, and I'm I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. But shit, let's pour a drink. I think, I think we're just going to have to, you know, like throat punch this and, and dig into the episode. And, uh, you know, that's an intro. And that, that's something, right? Uh, it's a reasonable explanation, I guess. A uh, couple digs there at Alexander Nash. But, hey, ten years of him calling me a dog fucker. Every introduction, not every, but uh, a lot of them. We have a little tension, a little bit. So what's in a title? What's in a uh, show? What is Death by DVD in general? I mean, I, I referenced this or touched upon it a little while ago, but I mean, really, when we started the show, uh, it was an exploration into uh, exploitation, and that that's fun, and we still have a lot of fun with that, and we're you know we're digging into the the video nasties and the complete list and. Just knocking that ball right to hell and back, something that we can probably do for ten more years if we decide to. But I just, uh, I get bored so easily, and I feel that happens to everyone that, that truly gets into genre filmmaking. After a while, you've seen, you know, not everything, but you've seen enough of everything that you begin... Easily surmising what's going to happen next, or it just gets tiring. You get to the point that you start recognizing the same voice actors and movies, and there's a lot of, there's just a a, a lot of boredom, and some people don't feel the same way. Uh, I think I might be kind of an odd man out in this situation. I recently was having this discussion with Manny Serrano. Uh, you know, most of his life, most uh, of all of his thoughts, everything that he really cares about is horror-related as an artist, as a director, a writer, a filmmaker in general, um, just a, a human. He, that's his, his thing. And some people, you know, you, you find your thing and you get into it and you just, you know, you can dance with that your entire life and it's completely contention. I, you know, for a while I, I have a lot of things that I am passionate about that really interest me and it kind of fades off and there are certain things that never you know fade off like I'll get a, a really big interest in a certain style of music for a long time and I'll always uh, maintain an appreciation for that style of music but eventually it's not like my core everyday listening using that just kind of loosely as an example when it comes to something like film that's the broad spectrum I've never lost an interest in movies I've never lost an interest in making movies writing movies filming movies um, talking about movies, podcasting about movies, just, just whatever I can, whatever, uh, you know, piece of myself that I can lend to talking about or, or dealing with or, or involving myself with movies is going to make me happy. And what changes over time is, is, you know, where you are interested in and or what you're interested in, rather. And, you know, always constantly, I, I always will love genre films. I'll always love specifically horror genre films and exploitation films and, you know, Italian exploitation films uh, at the capital of that. But I just get tired. And a, a lot of it is violence, which, yeah, it's a fucking pussy thing to say, violence, man. That's why you like horror. I know, but it just gets to a point with me that you watch somebody's head get ripped off so many times. I've, I've just seen it. Give me a different reason for somebody's head getting ripped off. 
and then maybe we're we're working with something. Maybe we're starting to cook with gas. You know, I'm I'm just tired of the same demons and monsters and zombies and goblins and ghosts and bears and republicans. Oh my, it, it just keeps going and going and going, but where is it actually going? And you know, right now one of the big waves with filmmaking are, you know, it's not even so much a wave, it's just people that uh, grew up in the 1980s and 1990s that really reminisce of a certain style and a certain production value and a certain quality of horror film have gotten to an age that they are now the creators and creating uh, content. And the content is very reminiscent of what it was, and ah, I loved it at first, but now just everything fucking looks like John Carpenter. Everything is pseudo-steadicam and, and just meh. And I'm tired of it, and it's not that I'm tired of horror, and that's not where this whole rant is going, despite this double feature that we will eventually get into, not particularly being horror whatsoever, but more or less, uh, I don't know, a statement from Hank. We do this show. We talk all the time. You hear once a week from us. You can email us. You can Facebook us. We do the Death by DVD daily. We're, we're out there. But you never actually, you know, hear from Alexander Nash or myself pertaining to, uh, you know, what we are into or why we're even doing this, why we have an interest in even talking about this. You know, it's kind of like just two fucking weird guys on the Internet that you've tuned into uh, and there's no backstory for. And I have a deep appreciation for that and find it somewhat hysterical. But at the same time, I demand an audience. I am deprived one because nobody reads anymore. So I will babble and rant and chatter and smoke and, uh, you know, fill the airwaves with whatever because you can tune out. You don't have to be listening to this. You have to go out of your way to find this. You have to go out of your way to find Death by DVD in general. It's not like it's being pushed down your throat. So you decide to sit and listen to the bad quality. And if you have for the last 11 years, you've taken quite a fucking ride because it's gone from pretty reprehensible to eh, it's not it's not great right now either, but it's a little bit better. It's a little bit better, but tastes change, people change. It's not even so much a matter of changing. I, I just, I see certain things, and I have an appreciation for movies, I think, a little bit different than Alexander Nash, and that's not meant as a dig. That's meant uh, just to the fact that I see things differently. A lot of the time, he will accuse me of being nihilistic and negative and looking on the darker aspects of things, but unfortunately, I think I just deal more with a non-fantasy side of things. And it's not that I don't want hope or a better tomorrow or that I don't hope for a better tomorrow. It's that I'm in the now a little bit more and maybe I have a deeper appreciation for realism on that artistic level toward, you know, like um, Mandy. That was one of the last big movies we did on Death by DVD when it was a live show. And I really thought, you know, when I saw it and, you know, talked to Alexander Nash that we were going to have dead on same opinions and we came on to uh, onto the show as a live episode and we just completely uh, differed and that's something i think that makes the regular show death by dvd a very very special thing because we're we you know we are friends for some reason there's this misconception that we hate each other or we don't talk outside of the show we do we're we're pretty good friends we just have completely different thoughts that really don't come out until we begin doing uh you know the show and a lot of the times It'll be something that gets pushed away or shut down, and you know I'll jot it down for later. And they, you know, get formed into ideas and pushed off and pushed off until finally we have to do a commercial saying we're going to do a Hank Solo show. And then somebody reminds me, "Hey, you said you were going to do that winter 2020." And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I guess maybe I don't have a complete, uh, firm grasp of when the seasons change. I guess winter's nearing its end. It's it's mid February. 
I may be wrong. I may be completely incompetent. I'm going to suggest incompetency. But whatever, we're getting this out of the way. I mean, we're slouching slowly toward Bethlehem as we speak. It's a weird omen reference. It's also a weird Chaz Ballon reference to Greg Goodsell. And if you get that, fucking kudos to you, man. You own some cool books. Ah, uh, so I guess we just got a throat punch. We got to go into this because we've, we've gotten this out of the way. We've taken some time and uh, some thought trying to explain what we're going to do here and what the process and idea of, of these Hank shows are going to be. Have we? Has it made sense? It's not like you can answer me, and unfortunately, if it doesn't make sense, we're still going to keep pushing forward, and uh, it'll only make things worse, I guess. So, a double feature. I think my favorite format of taking in movies is the double feature, and there's something about the double feature that is, is just completely fucked up and lost in this day and age that... Most people try and just find movies that are somewhat similar or have similar actors or uh, close plots. A lot of appreciation has been lost for this, and it's somewhat like the art of the mixtape. Back in the day, you know, you'd sit and listen to the radio, or you'd go through your record collection, and you would try to find the perfect stop on the song to add it to your mixtape that you'd either give someone or for your car or whatever reasons you were making it. It was an art. And this digital era, a lot of that artistry has been completely lost with being able to format things and and not to completely like shit on joe bob briggs but joe bob uh, has returned with his show on shutter and for you know all in, intents and re purposes it's a double feature and this is what i mean by double features that aren't really handled well that most of the time it's either whatever shutter has the rights for or some loosely explained reason and again like i'm a joe bob briggs fan and i, I you know I'm, I'm out here babbling mindlessly about movies and we have been for years obviously there's a big influence uh, coming from that and you know joe bob goes to the movies and, and his books and literature and his career beforehand and, and what he continues to do and strives to do and does not just for horror and exploitation but for movies in general so you know not trying to completely dump on what joe bob's out there trying to do and and, and what the show is on shutter I'm a fan, and that's why I mostly try and keep my mouth shut. Uh, and it's really just, y you can enjoy what you can can get. And that's, uh, we'll get into some, some stuff similar to this, some themes later to this. You can enjoy what you're getting right now, or you can just complain about how you never got it. And that's the way I'm trying to look at it. So I, I really don't like to vocalize or say anything like, meh, I didn't enjoy the last season of Joe Bob's show. It's not that I didn't enjoy it, it's... I've spent years doing this, so I've seen most of the movies, and at one point, I'm sure I would have been wowed by a lot of the things Joe Bob says, but, you know, sometimes I find myself, you know, going outside to smoke or avoiding it because I know the facts, and that's what happens when you spend 10 years doing a fucking show about mostly horror movies, and now some other types of movies. We, uh, years ago, we're trying to incorporate more old-school jokes into the show, and a lot of them, I guess, uh, are, are falling short. Uh, years ago, we, we had this dumb running joke that we were going to do a review of Bette Midler's film, Beaches. And uh, we've been bringing that back, and I, I don't know why. I just always want to bring it up, and nobody gets it. We had this long-running joke about Vincent Price just being addicted to getting laid, and, and you know, he's the suavest man in America. A lot of garbage. Orson Welles, Owen Wilson, same guy. Absolutely 100% same guy. None of them were funny 10 years ago, and surprisingly, none of them are 
funny now, but we're, we're still gonna push it. You know, it's like we're, we're, it's like making fetch work. We're gonna try. The double feature art is commonly lost. The idea of finding two movies that not only are alike, and it, you know, you don't have to worry about cast or production value, or even if they're English-speaking movies. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm just absolutely convinced people that don't like foreign movies can't read very well. So, with a little bit of elegance, I'd like to try and slide into the first part of our double feature. But as usual, I like to make things as completely difficult as I can. So, I want to avoid saying one of the movie's titles, which will be our second in the double feature tonight. The first film, I think uh, I referenced it earlier, maybe. I said something about Robert Mitchum. The first film's a Robert Mitchum movie. And I am uh, I'm a pretty big Robert Mitchum fan. Well, what does that even mean? I'm a pretty big Robert Mitchum fan. I like this guy that's been dead like 30 years. Uh, so what, I've seen a bunch of his movies. It's, it's a weird concept, fandom, or uh, uh, I guess furthering the appreciation of people. But what do you say? You know, what, what else? I, I'm aware of this gentleman, Robert Mitchum, who was in multiple films, and I'm going to begin discussing him in an orthodox manner, I guess. I could have gone in that direction. I don't know. I'm a fan of Robert Mitchum, though. I, I do like Robert Mitchum's work. And when you, uh, when generally when you bring him up, when you when you discuss him, I think most people think of of Western pictures um, and just cowboys in general, which isn't a, a misconception. I mean, most of his career, uh, definitely his beginnings, his early career, the middle part of his career, going into the the mid 1950s was mostly dominated by uh, by Western work. And, you know, that that's neither here nor there. You, you can either like them or you can absolutely hate them. I have uh, an affinity toward Western films. And I say that, but I don't regularly really watch them anymore, nor do I have a collection uh, based on, on anything else. But I have an appreciation for the guys like Howard Hawks and um, like John Wayne in, in general, just the Duke, which I'm sure there will be some John Wayne discourse on this episode. We'll... We'll see. I mean, we're going into Robert Mitchum territory, so it'll probably be coming up here fairly fairly soon. But Robert Mitchum, you think of him as a bad guy. You think of him as a drunk. You think of him as generally a villain-esque character. And it gets a little annoying to me that, yeah, a lot of his greatest performances were villains, but I don't know. It's just the, the cowboyism, the, the, the anti-Westernisms that push people off really appreciating something fantastic. Kind of like with Cannibal Holocaust, people will go out of their way to avoid that movie and completely disregard it because of the very awful animal violence sequences, which, uh, like I just said, they're pretty fucking awful. You're still evading a, a piece of art by forcing that judgment onto something, which a lot of people, you know, you can do and we've done before, I've done before, uh, rather, with judging something as perversion over art or pornography over art, and, you know, you, you can have ridiculous boundaries, and uh, when I say ridiculous, I mean it more or less in a sense for myself, because I'm out here attempting to review movies and review forms of art, so if I have a boundary of something, I think that is is wrong. If there's something I'm not willing to watch, that's a problem. Now, obviously, I think there's there's normal things that you should not want to watch, like bestiality or, or snuff, you know, despite, uh, for, for all... Discussion on the matter, snuff not really existing, but whatever, real gore, what, you know, uh, there's a very big difference between, like, a gonzo porn and a movie, and if you're going to present one as the other, there's a problem. You know, you can't 
can't have your cake and eat it too. Some things have to be labeled and some things have to be specific things. But when you start... Where the hell are we going with this? Oh, uh, the judgment of Robert Mitchum. Yeah, that's the main thing. That's where we were getting into, the judgment of Robert Mitchum. So, you know, I think most people look at somebody like Robert Mitchum uh, and, and, you know, you evade his movies, you evade his career because you assume it's going to be a dreary Western. And not that Westerns are specifically dreary, but if you're not a fan of them in general, it's pretty much the same thing. Which, I mean, like, okay, Robert Mitchum made, what was it, Rio Lobo? Was he, did he do Rio Lobo? Because there's Rio Bravo, Rio Lobo, and then there's another one that might have Rio in the title. Two of them have Dean Martin as the drunk. One of them has, I guess, maybe Howard Hawks got tired of Dean Martin. One of them has Robert Mitchum as the drunk. And this is uh, kind of where a good point and focus on excellence can be taken into place here. And no offense to Dean Martin, who I think is a wonderful actor in his own right. Dean Martin was uh, a better singer than he was an actor, and he was a better drunk than he was an actor. Robert Mitchum, who also sang, wasn't as good as a singer. He was also a drunk. I, I don't know. I, I think Mitchum probably could outdrink Dean Martin, but I'm probably wrong in, in saying that. Robert Mitchum could act. Robert Mitchum could act drunk. Robert Mitchum could act sober. But my meaning behind this is when Robert Mitchum played a drunk, he played much more convincing drunk than Dean Martin, who was more than likely actually drunk while he was just performing because it's Dean Martin and that's the guy you hired. Robert Mitchum, he was an interesting guy, and a lot of people will say, and a lot of things that you can read about him, is he was a difficult guy. And I think that really is a problem with directors and not so much Robert Mitchum. And what I mean by that is something that I actually heard from Peter Yates, who worked with Robert Mitchum, and we'll just go ahead and announce the first movie, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. He directed the film 1973, which stars Robert Mitchum. He said of him that it wasn't that he was a difficult guy, but he he didn't want to talk about his character. He didn't want to talk about what was going on. He'd rather show you that, you know, let that let it roll, let me show you what I've worked on, and something that I, I think is a point to take notice in, and especially, like, the difference between somebody like Dean Martin and Robert Mitchum, and, and this is just kind of a debacle between, like, Rio Bravo and, uh, you know, Rio Lobo and a little bit of silliness, and, yeah, sure, they kind of look alike and they were both drunks, but somebody like Dean Martin, when he played a drunk, he was more or less Dean Martin. Robert Mitchum somehow brought something to the table that, let's just call it acting, makes a difference between things. And it's not that, you know, musicians don't make fine actors or vice versa, or you can't transgress or move into different roles in your life, but appreciation for Robert Mitchum. I guess that's where we're getting back into here. We keep getting off point and, and, and wandering around into ranting territories. Mitchum had a style. And his style was, you know, slowly kind of evolving into whatever the character was. And, and I think it's something, you know, similar to character actors like Sean Penn. Like, Penn is very well known to approach the role completely in character and never kind of break character. You know, like, uh, while filming Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he became Jeff Spicoli. And nobody really knew who he was. And he shows up to the premiere with a haircut and, you know, not bleach blonde and high. And people were kind of wowed, like, oh, fuck, that's, yeah, he's been in the movie the entire time. And that's method acting. And, you know, you can 
really get out of place and some wild things can happen being a method actor like uh, Jared Leto on the uh the whatever movie with all the people and Will Smith and they're they're doing stuff and it's comic books that one where he sent people dildos because that's what the Joker would do the Joker would send people dildos a crime boss a crime boss of like a giant metropolitan city nonetheless it's not like I was even going to say, it's not like Newark, but fuck, it might as well be, because, you know, I mean, that's the Sopranos, Jesus Christ, that's that's not small potatoes here, but it's the Joker, and I don't know, I think that says something more or less about somebody like Jared, who, you know, ah, uh, yeah, what's a, what's, well, let's send him dildos, that's going to really fuck with him, no, you're just a dick, you're just an asshole, and, and that's what it makes you, and, and you know, uh, I, Alexander Nash, and I did on the best of 2019, uh, a, a pseudo review, not really a review, but we discussed the Joker and uh, the problematic nature of the Joker. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? But we did. We talked about that, and I think kind of the people that are 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 more behind the idea of the Joker, like Jared Jared Leto, Jared Leto, whatever his goddamn last name is, people like that that really think it's something like sending used dildos or condoms or roaches and, and all the other extravagantly stupid things that he did. I think it's it's that mentality that really fucks things up, and, and that's more or less the problem with products like that, is you're really arming idiots. You're just giving them stuff to further their idiocy with, and they're going to jerk off about it and take it all the wrong way, and it, it never works out right. And guys like Chuck Palahniuk, I think, even evaluate and, and kind of acknowledge that, that, you know, like post his uh, Fight Club career and, and you know, that, that blowing him to fame and, and rocketing him to the top of, of the edgiest guys in the world thing. I think, you know, he's even furthered with his writing and tried to elaborate how that's a problem. And, you know, maybe Fight Club 2 and I think 3. I think there's three of them now. Three Fight Club. Ah. Three fight clubs, two of them are graphic novels, one's the book and one movie. That doesn't so much count. You know, you gotta buy in, you gotta make money, you gotta survive. And survival, I guess, is a, a good segue getting into where we're going to journey for the rest of the night. So, God, I mean, we had a spiraling, long, out-of-control introduction. A little bit of explanation. Uh, a lot of Robert Mitchum talk. Have we? I don't know if we're clear on the Robert Mitchum talk. I think... We might need to have a little bit more Robert Mitchum talk. And and really what I was trying to express and have kind of lost my place with is uh, you, you judge and you look at certain actors in, in specific roles and you get this idea that this is all they're worth and all they're capable of doing, so you're not willing to give other roles and other things a chance. And Robert Mitchum largely made uh, westerns. I think one of his final roles was a Western. I think his actual final role was like a made-for-TV James Dean thing, but the, the last big movie he did was the uh, the Jim Jarmusch Western, the uh, the one with Johnny Depp, Michael Wincott, um, I think Lance Henriksen's in it. Yes, he is. Lance Henriksen's in it. Dead Man. And you start your career a certain way, you end it a certain way. I guess that's uh, unique in the sense of time being a flat circle, but to expose the type of roles and the type of depth and the type of art that Robert Mitchum as a guy was interested in, I really think Dead Man as you know his final uh, product, what brought him out of retirement, what made him want to do a last role, is 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 interesting. And wow, I mean, we we got from Howard Hawks to Jim Jarmusch pretty fast, starting with 
fucking Rio Bravo and Rio Lobo and actually w- was Rio Lobo Howard Hawks last film? I think it might have been. Not that any of that matters because we're not talking about Howard Hawks at all. We're going to talk about right now and I mentioned earlier I'd like to try and for a little while keep the two movies apart, this double feature apart, because I'd like to give some appreciation to both of the movies on their own, though I'm sure once we dive into the second part, the second movie, I'm gonna just, you know, make this one big ball of shit, and, uh, you know, really it's gonna turn into a exploration of character development, and, and just really a character exploration between two people I think are very fascinating and, and well-written and well-directed characters. So, um, again, just diving into the subject matter. 1973, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. It is based on a novel, and we're not going to talk about that because the novel is pretty much mirror to the movie. So you can pick one or the other. I've only seen the movie, and so that's where we're, we're, we're going to get into and what we're going to talk about. Uh, I, we'll try and focus a little bit on what the movie's about, but what I really want to focus on and get into is these characters and a lot of the ideas that are presented with these characters between both motion pictures. The Friends of Eddie Coyle. It presents the common life of a fairly common, normal guy, Eddie Coyle, played by Robert Mitchum. Ah! is for Robert Mitchum. O is for, oh my God, is Robert Mitchum. B is for, by George, it's Robert Mitchum. I know we usually only hold that for the esteem, which is Robert Loggia, but we're gonna, we're just gonna stop, because you get the idea. Robert Mitchum, one hell of a guy. You think I'm fond of him? You think I might like the guy a little bit? Robert Mitchum plays a, you know, just low-level criminal. He's a Boston gun runner. Boston. That's why we're gonna do the coffee talk thing. We're gonna do the whole coffee talk thing, and then do a whole segue into Boston, and it would've worked, but goddamn, it's even strenuous doing it now. You know, and and not, <laughs> we're going to talk about a movie filmed in Boston uh, about Boston crime, and we're going to talk about a lot of appreciation for Boston, so let me segue into this real quick. You know what my idea of hell would actually be? Boston. I mean, it's a beautiful city, and I have nothing absolutely against it. Let me specify. The Boston accent. Hell would be the DMV filled with people only from Boston. Just the, the Smart Park? Smart Park commercial. That would be fucking hell for me. And I like John I like The Office. I like The Dropkick Murphys. The Departed's a great movie. The Friends of Eddie Coyle. It's fantastic, but God, there's just something fucking grating about it. And I mean, I'm not going to be prejudiced here. Let's not just shit on Boston. New Jersey, you're fucking awful. You sound awful. Uh, Wisconsin, you're, you're bullshit. I'm from Maryland. The fucking Bollamer accent's garbage. You go to straight to hell. Awful, too. Everything. You know what? Uh, it, some of the problem is I, I think maybe the sound of the, the human voice is awful. But this is getting oddly personal. Maybe we should tread back to safer waters with the friends of Eddie Coyle. Have I even talked about what the goddamn movie... Have I brought that up? What it's about yet? I think that's what I was doing, right? I was doing that? So Robert Mitchum plays a low-level criminal in a Boston crime organization who's facing a few years in prison. He did a job for his friend, uh, Peter Boyle, who runs a bar and somehow works for the crime... Well, not somehow. I mean, he fucking works for the crime syndicate in Boston. I say somehow like it's going to be some mysterious thing. He somehow works for the crime syndicate. He's a bartender, and they live in the Southie Projects, and he works for the mob. He did a job, Eddie Coyle, Robert Mitchum, 
did a job for Peter Boyle, and things went wrong. He's facing some time for it. He's still got to make money. He's got three kids at home. He's got a wife. Things, you know, you go inside, and it's not like he's facing even a long time, though. Let me bring that up. He's only facing, like, six years, maybe seven at the most. He's he's entering his 50s. He's a nonviolent offender. He behaves himself. He'll probably get out, uh, you know, two, maybe three. Uh, things will be hard, but not that hard. His three kids and his wife should be able to survive. There's not a gun over his head. There's not a threat of violence. He's not snitched on anyone. He's just facing some time. So uh, with that established and out of the way, yeah, he's facing some time, but he's still, you know, reasonable that you would want to make some money and help your family and, you know, leave something while you're inside for however long you may be inside. So he is running some guns. Let's not spend a lot of time getting deeply into the into the plot and the story here because we're going to get overwhelmed with the, the crime aspect of this. And one of the things that I think is very, very important to the Friends of Eddie Coyle is, yes, this is a crime movie and it's a crime drama. It, it's somewhat in the vein of, I mean, uh, Peter Yates is a British director. He did, um, he did Bullet. I mean, I think that's one of the most uh, infamous films that people would recognize him from, the Steve McQueen picture. Um, the Friends of uh, Peter Coyle is one of his top three favorite movies. I think it was personally his favorite movie to, to go back and to discuss and, and to review. And there's obvious reasons as to why. Because, yeah, it's a crime movie, and it's very similar to the early uh, 70s, late 60s British crime movies like Get Carter. It's got a lot of that similar fast-paced dialogue, a lot of catchy phrases. And what made uh, movies like Get Carter specifically really good is they, they gave you an atmosphere and environment you might uh, not have known otherwise. And, uh, you know, like The Godfather. The Friends of Eddie Coyle is kind of like an anti-Godfather thing because The Godfather shows all this illustrious, great riches and how awesome it is to be a criminal on a, a picture like this. Uh, it shows definitely a, a, a broader downside, a more realistic side to it, and that's something that I think Peter Yates was incredibly competent with as a director, was presenting a vast realism, but an exciting film at the same time. So uh, you have a, a very modest depiction of this man just trying to get by in a, a very rough time of his life. And what makes this story and what makes this show and where we're going to start getting into things here, I guess this is, is where the, the whole sauce gets mixed together. It's the morality and the decisions people make and, and the, the decisions behind them. So like I just said, Eddie's surviving and he's got three kids and he's got a wife and he's facing prison time. It sucks. It, it sucks. I mean, what do you say? You're going to go to jail. Worse than jail, you're going to go to fucking prison. But you made your bed and you sleep in it. Things like that happen, and it sucks, but that's the outcome. You do your time, you get out. You can move on with life. Hell, you'd probably even get more credit uh, as an underworld figure doing something like this because you'd get out of prison and everyone would go, Hey, that guy Eddie Coyle, Eddie Knuckles, he ain't no joke. He served time and didn't rat on nobody. But that's not how it goes down, and that's not what happens to Eddie Coyle because Eddie only thinks of himself. And it's pretty intriguing because the character throughout the entirety of the movie continuously discusses, I can't go to jail because I got three kids. I can't go to jail. I don't, that's not a Boston accent. I, I, I'm not going to be able to do a Robert Mitchum doing a Boston accent. But the entire time he's discussing how important it is that he's there for his family where it's all about him. And this is where things start 
molding into the other movie. We're again, we're gonna try not say the title, but we can always beep it out if we do. If we, if we we do a little bit of a slip up, but the lead character in our second film in this double feature is somebody who is doing the exact same things for almost the same reasons of them happening, but not for himself, not by any means necessary. And there's two different ways of surviving. You know, you can survive by surviving for yourself, but that takes away from everything around you, and that's something that you have to completely and always remember is you're not the only person in any situation that is happening. And it's not like it's a simple fumble. This is something that truly will affect his situation and and what's going to happen to him forevermore. So Eddie thinks completely about himself, and... You know, I'm painting this picture of a, a, an unsympathetic, almost abusive, shitty person, and that's definitely not what this man is because he cares about his family, he cares about his life, but his thoughts directly are on him. He's a low-level guy. Most of his life is spent sitting in a truck stop waiting for a job, and he runs some bootleg liquor up the road to somewhere in Rhode Island, and that's what you know he gets busted for and what causes a problem for him in the long run in his life are these simple things and these... I don't know, almost bonuses of not even really having to do anything but do something. And he's gotten so used to being able to do things like this and provide, quote-unquote, that this is what he acknowledges as getting by and then being a man and doing bigger things. So there's no way he can go to prison. There's no way he can not take care of his family despite not really doing anything. I mean, sure, you provide a home and food and happiness and clothes to an extent with, uh, you know, happiness and the idea of buying people things. But what does that do? I mean... You could have still probably taken the time and gotten out and gotten a pay raise, gotten a bump. I guess we're getting to a point that now we're really going to have to divulge and get into the second movie. Because, you know, um, I brought this up at the beginning of the show. Not only is this a double feature, but uh, it's really a character study on two uh, entities, two, two written characters that I have grown an affinity for. And both of these people on film... I think, have a, a lot of comparability and comparability between who they are and what they stand for and what both of them do in the features that they're both presented in. So, ah, uh, here here's the, the big thing, I guess, now. The first film that we have been discussing is The Friends of Eddie Coyle. If you'd like to find it and finish it for yourself without knowing any spoilers, here is your point of, you know, getting out of the show. Go no further. But also, we will begin to discuss and get into the second part of this double feature and kind of get this big, wet fucking sandwich rolling and figure out what we can do and what else I'm going to talk about. Because I have all these discussion points and I've got all these fantastic things, but i got to unleash the beast and bring up what the second movie is to get into that. So, follow at your own risk. Um, ab- abandon all hope, ye who enter. That's not... Why do you reference that? Um, yeah, so spoilers from, from, from here on out. Is that fair? Are we fair? Okay. All right. Spoiler alert. Eddie doesn't finish the movie. And what I mean by that is he, he dies. And let's go back to the predicament that Eddie got himself into. He's facing some time in jail, and he's going to be away from his family and not able to provide for them at the core essence in which he thinks is providing for them. 
So he goes out of his way to talk to an ATF agent and try and give information on, you know, whatever can get him out of trouble, whatever can get his name into better graces. While his gun dealing is for a small-time Boston crew that's knocking around banks, they're, they're robbing banks and causing some absolute mayhem, more than likely for the syndicate or for some other bigger crime figure. But eventually, violence is brought into the situation during a bank robbery, and somebody is killed. So now, this has become a big, important matter of trying to figure out what's going on. Eddie is dealing with trying to not rat on his friends, but he has to deal with, you know, going to prison and not being able to provide for his family. Meanwhile, there's a character that's brought into this mix named Jackie Brown. No relation to the Tarantino movie, but it is one hell of a name. Jackie Brown. Um... Jackie is is a small-time gun dealer, and he's the guy that is supplying Eddie Coyle his firearms for his friend, the Scal, played uh, by Alex Rocco? Yeah, it's Alex Rocco from The Godfather. Um, the Scal, Scalisi, is running this, this bank robber front. Um, bank robber front, that doesn't make sense. This bank robbing gang, these tough hombres robbing banks. Does that make more sense? He is getting the guns from Eddie. Eddie's getting the guns from Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's just trying to get by. All of these people aren't connected any other ways outside of their business and their motives in life. And unfortunately, that's just how things are. You know, you, you are connected with people. You meet people. You know people averagely in life just from business and how things uh, tend to fall into place. And it's not so much personal. It's not like friends or family uh, that's a great idea, and um, you know, I I referenced and brought up something like the Friends of Eddie Coyle being kind of an opposition to The Godfather, which is all about family and, and connectivity and people being close and this secret organization as to where the the true side of things is a, is a bit more cold and the true side of things is is absolute realism and realism is I think the the piece that really makes this movie I think this is what drives the friends of Eddie Coyle home is the realism presented and just the coldness of what what do you do when you're forced with survival and Eddie as as a man as a person as a character or whatever you want to take it his idea of survival is strictly surviving and him getting out of the situation at whatever cost it may be whether delving sympathy through his friends of my poor wife she's gonna have to work uh you know okay uh, or is it actually getting something done and ratting on people? And, and what ends up happening? We'll try and leave a little bit mystery, uh, you know, so you can watch this for yourself and take something for yourself. But what ends up happening is Eddie crosses too many lines. Too many things happen. And you have definitive lines that are, are truly in life, you know, um, morals, standards, beliefs, right, wrong. And when these lines are crossed and you step over these boundaries, certain things happen, a butterfly effect kind of thing. And this is going to start pushing us into our, our second feature. You do something, things happen, you have to fess up to it. You have to pay uh, a certain price for whatever. And again, you know, you, you look back on the past and you worry about trying to fix a situation that happened previously as to where you should probably be living in the now and not dealing with, what happened? It happened. Get over it. It's happened. You've, you've got to deal with the fact that it's happened. And Eddie just refuses to do so. And he crosses many lines between morals, uh, between his own association, his own morals, his friend's morals, or uh, what people could perceive and think of him. And he crosses the line of, I, I guess, professionalism on a, a career criminal level. And his own salvation comes into play, where it's obvious that he is worried strictly about himself. 
and all of these things uh, collapse upon him and, and turn it all into a house of cards. And unfortunately, Eddie doesn't deal very well with what happens to him at the end of the day. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's wrapped up in a very beautiful and quaint soliloquy uh, about Bobby Orr and just the difference in life, uh, being able to start over again, move down to Florida, everything being okay. And that's sort of a focal point with... Um, a lot of this movie is just being able to make that one big job and, and get out of town and, and get out of there and have the American dream and the white picket fence and everything being perfect and happy for you. And not everything works that way. That, unfortunately, is 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 reality and where, again, realism comes into play. And one of the benefits of the Friends of Eddie Coyle is the absolute realism. And it's not just the provocative nature of the underworld or the crime associations that are shown within, but uh, just what happens. Eddie's, for all intents and purposes, a normal guy. He has a normal wife, a normal house. He, he just lives. He gets by, and his career happens to be uh, what would be considered a bad career, I guess. But uh, just because you do bad things doesn't mean you're a bad person. And I know that's very, very hard for people to take because you think you're defined by that. But truthfully... You can do bad things. You can do a bad job that does not make you, at the end of the day, a bad person. Now, yes, your actions can be defined by, by things. I mean, if you're out there skinning puppies, uh, I, I, we're going to have a hard time trying to defend you. Somebody like Eddie Coyle, he did bad things, and some of the things he did, he ran guns. Who knows what they're being used for? Uh, crimes against humanity, harm, bank robberies, death, uh, for this point in the movie, bank robberies. But... Somebody still lost their life, an innocent person lost their life trying to uphold and, uh, you know, do their job while somebody else is trying to uphold and do their job. And there's even a specific line and, and point in the movie where uh, the scowl is, is in the midst of a bank robbery and says, we don't we don't get off hurting people. We don't want to hurt anybody. We just want to get this job done with. And a lot of time in modern crime movies, I mean, not even so much modern, but, you know, the late 70s, even like Scarface, you've got the scene where they're... Uh, they're picking up the coke at the the beginning of the movie, and they they put Tony and his friend in the bathtub, and they cut his friend up with a chainsaw, and they're just getting off on it. You know, they're having a good old time cutting this guy up, just just absolute crazy violence. And you get to a point going to the the seventies, uh, late seventies into the eighties, where you know villains, bad guys, uh, organized crime members, and 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 you know. Uh, counterculture movies, genre crime movies, they were harming people for the fun of harming people. And that really isn't the point. That that wasn't what these guys were about, and that really isn't a play into the movie. Um, Alfred Hitchcock said that, you know, when you bring a gun into a movie, it kind of kills everything, and, and it, it really dismisses a lot of the story and the plot. And to an extent, he's absolutely correct, but like a, a story, uh, a film like The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Guns are uh, an integral part of, of what the entire story is about and is driving it, and it is almost like an anti-matter of, uh, like, a, an opposition completely of, of what Hitchcock had to say on the matter. But it works very specifically in a movie like this, and I referenced earlier Get Carter, a film that firearms do appear in, but until they finally make a, a catapulting part of the movie, you know, really are shown in it, which is the end of the movie, it, it kind of plays against the reason it was initially brought into the movie, and that worked, and that worked for the drama, and that worked for what you were trying to tell with the story, but at the same time was kind of, you know, like, bum bum uh, a sad fucking trumpet playing in the background, because it just kind of pissed on all of your hope. And 
from the very beginning with the Friends of Eddie Coyle, you are given kind of like a moderate hope, maybe, but at the end of the day, you still think Eddie's going to be okay. And when he goes out the way he goes out, it, it's not so much nihilism, and it's not a, a, a mask of negativity, but it's just like, fuck. I guess that's the way it goes. It'd be like that. It'd truly be like that. And that's what you are left. That's, that's you know, a, a, a funny kind of way of making things sound, but you are left with not so much disappointment, but the reflection of, yeah, that's the way she goes, and it never goes right. And, you know, I guess maybe you could be one of those lucky people where things just go right, but for the most part, for the average person, you try, you try, you try. That's it. You just fucking try. The Friends of Eddie Coyle. But it's not a defeating thing. It's not like you try and you're going to get shot by Peter Boyle. Yeah, I mean, it might. He is dead. Peter Boyle has died. But I don't know. I mean, stranger things have happened. I think maybe we can get into part two. I don't think I have to beep anything out. I think we managed to do the entire segment and not mention that the second movie was Brawl and Cell Block 99. Morality, survival, it's a lot of the themes. That's that's really what we're going to be moving into and I guess what we've been dealing with. And, you know, uh, so we're going to lose, I think, our format here because I wanted to try and individually talk about both movies. But now that we're going to introduce the second one, it's just going to be a combination of both things. So I'll probably lose a, a lot of focus on what is going on with the second movie. But I don't know. Maybe I'll bite my tongue on that. And by the end of the show, we'll be happy with, with what ended up happening. So the Friends of Eddie Coyle isn't necessarily about a selfish man. But, you know, obviously in the title, the word friends is a play on people you know, people you encounter through business or life in general. Friends. What are they? What's in a friend? What's in a title? What's in a name? Uh, we're all getting full circle here at the beginning of the show to the middle half. And, uh, you know, moving into different acts, I think, is something that allows you to really see the format of, of who this character is. Because in the first part of the movie, Eddie is a pretty agreeable guy, and you can almost see yourself in... Uh, his shoes. I mean, he's just a guy. And by the second half of the movie, the desperation really begins to flow. And by the third act, it's almost like he's become something absolutely completely different. The animal instinct of survival has truly taken over. And for him, I think, well, not just for him, but for people in general, there's two types of survival, fight or flight. And that's just the instincts in general with life. And I mean it in the sense that you can fight to survive, but not always does survival mean you not always are you going to be you know at the end of the movie and and that can be for yourself or in, in the notion of a movie we're going to be talking about we'll avoid getting too philosophical but you can ask questions to yourself and i think apply them for the the subject matter of both of these movies so moving on to a guy in a very, very similar situation, doing the exact same thing as Eddie Coyle, surviving Brawl in Cell Block 99 by S. Craig Zaylor. So this movie is about a guy named Bradley, specifically Bradley. It's not Brad, and I completely feel that. Because, you know, sometimes people call me Hank Defer. I hate it. Harrison cannot stand it. It's Hank. Just Hank. 
like fucking Cher, just Hank. You want to do the whole thing? Hank the world's greatest. Hollywood Hank the world's greatest. That's fine. Hank defer. Get fucked, okay? But Bradley. Bradley, uh, again, it's very, and this is where the contrast begins to, uh, and and we're going to lose the format of trying to talk about both movies. So let's just try and uh, abandon that format right now. Not try. We're going to. Fuck it. We're going off the deep end. Let's go swimming. So these movies, now that I've presented The Friends of Eddie Coyle probably very poorly and inadequately, we're, we're moving into Brawl and Cell Block 99. These movies are presented in, in very similar and, and, and frighteningly similar aspects to one another. And uh, on Brawl's part comes to Zayler as a director and a writer and some of his influences will get into that a little bit later maybe if I remember to in the midst of these rants but both of these movies begin with the presentation of a fairly normal person Bradley is a tow truck driver he's a sober guy clean living just trying to get by and he's fired he has to go home he finds out that his wife is cheating on him one of the most explosive scenes of the movie and this is a movie that has a lot of provocative violence in it Provocative in the sense that it's unusual and it's not the amount of violence that makes it provocative, but it's the way it's displayed. But in one of my favorite displeen, uh, displays of... Ex- ah, what? Displeens? That's not right. One of my favorite displays of incredible violence in this movie is at the very beginning when Bradley just loses it on his car. He finds out his wife's cheating on him. He's been fired from work, and he just beats the living love and hell out of his car, completely destroys it, and goes inside and has a very incredible civil conversation where you are painted a picture of who this guy is. In The Friends of Eddie Coyle, you have a very similar uh, scene at the beginning of the movie. Eddie Coyle meets up with Jackie Brown. And this is where you begin to find out about the work of Eddie Coyle and who he is and, and, and you know what he does and, and how he supplements his family that he supposedly cares so much about. He's making a deal to get guns at the very beginning of the film. And he is shown walking in you know to a little Boston diner and he gets a slice of pie and he gets some coffee and he sits down because he's just a normal guy. You know, he's dressed normally, talks normally, and, and, and one thing to, to, to talk about going back to Robert Mitchum and, and just how powerful and, and charismatic he truly was as an actor, there are subtle things, and like, you know, I had referenced, uh, he had a no- notion of being a difficult guy to work with, as uh, apparently Vince Vaughn has a, a notion to be difficult with, which, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get into his performance as Bradley in a little while and, and how it is as great as... Robert Mitchum and the Friends of Betty Coyle. But Robert Mitchum uh, had this idea about him. Uh, he was a difficult guy to get along with, and that comes from really... He didn't like to talk about what he was doing. You know, he wanted to come on set. You hire an actor. You 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 got somebody because you, you know what they can do. You know what they are capable of doing. So he thought that's what you hired him for, and, and you know Mitchum would come on set, and he wanted the chance to show you what he had before you told him what he needed to have. So, yeah, I can understand that there's a display that people could definitely find difficult to get along with. But in the long run, uh, you look at something like The Friends of Eddie Coyle, then you look at something like, you know, one of the Westerns I, I referenced at the beginning of the show. Uh, it's absolutely a difference. I mean, this guy is Eddie Coyle. He's not just acting. Robert Mitchum has become Eddie Coyle. He, he's got this 
distinctive Boston accent. That's something that really carries and drives this movie. Is it's a Boston movie, and it's not just like ah, it takes place in Boston. Yeah, you know. And, and again, like The Departed kind of has an issue with that. Like, yeah, we got Mark Wahlberg. How's your mother? It's Boston. Okay, I get it. The Friends of Eddie Coyle. There was a lot of appreciation put into it actually being Boston. Uh, for one part, it's shot almost entirely, not almost, it is shot entirely on location. Even the banks are banks, the police station's a police station, everything's Boston, everything's New England. Everyone involved, I mean, listen to Robert's voice. He is Boston. I mean, he has, I can't, I was going to do an impersonation, but, okay, I won't do a Robert Mitchum impersonation, but I'll do a Kathleen Turner impersonation. Hold on. Ah! I, 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 Hey, I'm Kathleen Turner. I was in Jewel the Nile and Serial Mom and Friends. I'm Ka- I'm, hey. <clears throat> it's hard getting in, in, in uh, you know, getting in and out of that, being able to, to do that. But uh, shocking, right? It sounds exactly like Kathleen Turner. That's what we should do with the show as a whole. I could just do impersonations for the entire time. I can't do Robert Mitchum, though. So moving on from that. He has a, a distinctive flow to his voice where it, it is Boston. I mean, he has taken New England kind of into the consideration, and it's not just the drunk sheriff. And that really is, you know, at the beginning of the show where I was trying to get into a difference and talk about the appreciation of Robert Mitchum, where you have this uh, idea of him as just a fucking drunk sheriff, and that, oh, that's Robert Mitchum. He wears all black. Drunk sheriff guy. Yeah, uh, Dean Martin, too. Same guy, right? No. There's so much more. I mean, you've got the Charles Laughlin film, um, the the only film Charles Laughlin directed before he he died untimely of cancer. Night of the Hunter, one of the most insane uh, out of anyone. I mean, the, the movie's not been remade in any major facet because I don't think it fucking can be because it is so goddamn terrifying and so perfect. And most of that is all Mitchum, all rel- I mean, okay. Mitchum is Harry is one thing, but the the cinematography and and Laughlin's just direction for that movie is a massive part that needs to be taken into consideration. So let's omit that boner on my part. Um, Oh, Cape Fear. That's another really, really terrific good reference for Robert Mitchum. But again, everything I'm bringing up uh, portrays Mitchum as a bad guy. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's really, really good at it, and that's what most of his career was, playing a bad guy or a drunk, but... And the friends of Eddie Coyle, I argue, he's not a bad guy. And Braun Cellblock 99, Bradley certainly is not a bad guy. And that takes us back to your actions define certain things. What you do, what your job is, you do bad things. That doesn't make you a bad person. You skin puppies, you know, you molest children. There's a difference there. You know, it's not like I'm saying you steal a fucking car that makes you a bad person. You sell drugs that makes you a bad person, even to the extent of murder. That does not always make you a bad person. Now, again, there's a stipulation and a thin blue line, and as we discussed uh, earlier in this show with emotion and, uh, you know, the right and wrong, there are many lines that you can cross and, and many calculations to all of these things. So, you know, I'm not saying anything is absolutely definitive, but what I'm trying to accentuate is... Just because somebody fucking steals a car doesn't mean they're a bad person. Just because somebody sells guns doesn't make them a bad person. Just because somebody runs drugs doesn't make them a bad person. Now follow with me. I'm not just yelling for fun. Bradley, with a capital B played by Vince Vaughn, destroys his fucking car. 
has this communication with his wife, this communication that I think anyone that watches this movie wishes they could have with, I mean, maybe just not their significant other, but anybody in general, anybody that you have an opposition or a problem with uh, an eloquent discussion that is beautifully broadcast and displayed mostly um, on part, I think, really by Vince Vaughn. And one of the things uh, that, you know, sidetracking and going back to talk about uh, classifications and actors and people having judgment or ideas of actors because of, of previous roles. Vince Vaughn is very, very comparable or comparable. Com- comparable or comparable? You know what? Just like the dates and time, I have a very, very small grasp of the English language. In fact, there are toddlers that probably have a firmer grasp of the English language than me. Let's move on. These actors are very similar in the aspect that, for most part, when you think of Vince Vaughn, you generally are thinking of a comedy movie or a comedy effort, something funny, even like Swingers. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of drama in there. He did uh, the Gus Van Sant remake of Psycho and, and played Norman Bates in. So, yeah, he's done a little bit of stuff there. Did a movie? Didn't he do a movie? Didn't he do a movie? I'm I'm do, I'm do the one doing the show, and I'm asking the fucking, didn't he do a movie? <sighs> Coffee Talk, that would have been good for Coffee Talk. Didn't they do a movie? Uh, no, he did, um, what am I, what was I talking about? He did something, I was gonna ask you, and now I don't even fucking know. Shit, where are we at? I'm thinking about that movie he made with, um, God, I don't know. I, I, I have absolutely no idea. Vincent Vega, why is that popping into mind? Because he did make a movie with John Travolta, that's what I'm thinking about. Wow. So earlier in the show, we got kind of cool, and like we went from Howard Hawks all the way into Jim Jarmusch, and now we've just lost ourselves in the, the somewhat non-serious. But again, okay, this, this can drive us back on the point. Forgettable. The, we've gotten lost in the very, very forgettable roles of, of Vince Vaughn. So for the most part, you, you recognize and know him as a, as a comedic actor. You don't look at somebody like Vince Vaughn and think like, oh, you know, this guy is, is a drug dealer, or this guy is a criminal, or this guy is whatever, and I think that is something that really plays to the benefit of the Friends of Eddie Coyle, because you look at somebody like Robert Mitchum, and I guess you're going to assume, for the most part, and I'll be honest, when I went into the movie for the first time, I thought he was going to be uh, a much more of a dominant role, a much more of a a masculine figure, and, and that's just the way that he is, is mostly presented to you, and it's not like this is an effeminate role by any means, so I'm probably using uh, horrible terminology with this, but it, it's it's more of a dismissive role for, for somebody like Robert Mitchum, and it, it's such a bizarre thing seeing him evade the problem, and even when he, in the Westerns, plays a drunk sheriff, he still can you know shoot and kick ass at the end of the day, and in this movie, you're you're left with such a dreadful, you know, empty nihilistic, and I, again, I don't like that term because nihilistic and nihilism draws this kind of big black cloud that you imagine in your head, and, and by no means do I think the Friends of Eddie Coyle should be taken in, in that direction, but uh, the end of the movie kind of leaves you with that bitter nihilistic taste in your mouth, and there's not a lot you can do with it, and I don't know if I brought this up before. There's a format. I think I was raving about it, but, you know, this is the problem with the show. What I could use, what would be great, is a co-host, but a co-host that only interjects to keep me on point and actually doesn't talk. So essentially not me on regular Death by DVD, but just somebody that randomly will go, Hey, you were talking about this earlier, and it connects to things later. Uh, that That would really, really help out. 
But one of the, the big important things between the, the two characteristics of this movie is something that I discussed with the different ideas of survival and the idea of surviving for yourself or just the idea of surviving and the idea, of, furthermore, of just surviving, encompassing something like everyone. There's a bigger picture to things. So the movie is established um, that Bradley I- is at least willing to work. I mean, uh, mentally, physically, he's willing to progress. He's willing, He this isn't a difficult character. You're presented very early on with the Friends of Eddie Coyle that he is a difficult person, that he is not willing to work past what he wants to deal with. That Bradley can deal with everything. Bradley, uh, if things don't go your way, it doesn't go your way, which is, again, we, we use this terminology with the Friends of Eddie Coyle, realism. This movie, despite, and we'll get into this very soon, has a massive exploitation feel to it, but it has a level of realism that can be appreciated on the same depth of the Friends of Eddie Coyle. And and now we're getting back into why I needed the assistant to remind me of something that I was talking about previously, because the whole point of this entire thing was for me to talk about What you're shown and what you're given with Eddie is that he's not willing to to take one for the team, and the team isn't just you know a figurative thing of the mafia or the the connection he has with other people, but it's for his family, it's for his life. He could have just taken this and dealt with the entire situation and and come out eventually a free man with his dues paid to society, and this pushes uh, the characterization or I guess the the struggle between these two characters and what I, I truly want to present on this episode tonight, these these two different people, Bradley and Eddie Coyle and the difference of thereof, this is what really kicks it into overdrive. So what we've established and what you understand and acknowledge and know is that Eddie Coyle is a man that at no cost wants to uh, pay the time for the crime that he committed. So Bradley, uh, from where we've rambled and last left us off, which is still at the first five fucking minutes of the movie, gets into this wretched fight with his wife and establishes that she's cheating and establishes that you know he is willing to try and to try and try again and try and make tomorrow better. And not necessarily for himself, but something that uh, I referenced earlier is that there are many different pieces to your establishment. There are many different pieces to every puzzle in life, and when you act uh, solely upon yourself or act uh, strictly for your survival and you neglect to acknowledge those other pieces, that causes you know your house of cards to fall inward. And Bradley, on the other hand, does not allow things to work that way because he, he understands, I guess, uh, trying to empathize and, and look into this character as a real person. He understands the difference between right and wrong and morality and understands that you can do a bad job and not be a bad person. And that's what he begins to do. You know, he, he wants to have a American dream and not just in the essence of the Horatio Alger thing, but a white picket fence, not get rich or die trying, but happiness, a wife, a child, a, a nice house. All these things and more, this wonderful, great idea. You know, everything's going to be fantastic, and all he has to do is work for his massive-level drug-dealing friend running drugs for him. Again, it's not a good situation, and it's not what an average person would put themselves in, so you instantly want to say, well, it's a bad job for a bad guy, and you pay the, the time for the crime that you commit. Bradley has a a standard and level of morals that drives this movie, and it's something that I think if you dismiss and you don't 
take into consideration when you watch it, you don't really understand what uh, makes this movie and why it, I, I think it's just fucking great. And let me add that in, both of these films that I'm discussing tonight, I wouldn't discuss them if I didn't think they were great. That's going to be uh, a thing for the old solo show here, the, the old Hank show. I'm discussing things I think explicitly fucking kick ass. So, Brawl and Sublock 99, it kicks ass. Friends of Eddie Coyle, it also, it, it, it kicks ass fully. So Bradley ends up in a very bad situation. I mean, again, I, I think I said this a few times. I'll try and skip a lot of the major details here so you can watch this and, and take it in for yourself. But our hero, Bradley, trying to make things perfect. He's ended up making a wonderful life for himself by doing a bad job. Not maybe making himself a bad man, but he's doing something that is frowned upon, running drugs. His wife is pregnant. They are surviving the best way they can, and he ends up uh, forced to go inside. He has to join the penal community of the United States of America because of these crimes or because of his running of drugs. He doesn't rat on anyone, something that Eddie Coyle did not do initially. When Eddie began this, the situation was him not ratting on Peter Boyle's character, a job that was set up for him and he got busted for, and yeah, it's a hard deal, but what do you do? So when you begin this story, both of these people are, are somewhat similar. They're just trying to make ends meet. They're trying to live that American dream. They're trying to have the best existence that they can in the, the measly nothing suburbs of, in one essence, I, I think Staten Island or, or maybe Long Island and then maybe Boston. Well, not maybe. The Friends of Eddie Hoyle certainly takes place in Boston. That maybe was out of place. So, uh, you know, the Boston suburbs and the Boston inner city projects and upstate New York or Staten Island. I forget which. I truly forget which. It's one of the islands. I'm going to go with Long Island. Uh, Braun Subluck 99, Long Island, and it looks like Long Island. Two people in very comparable situations, and this is, a, you know, we're going to lose track. I, I think I've tried for the best part to hold on to some grasp of discussing these as two different movies and uh, I think I've said it a few times also but uh, we're just gonna make this a big ball and I really want to focus on Eddie and Bradley and the difference of these two people and the idea of their morals and their survival and and, and what it takes to survive and what it took these two people to survive and in the long run not. so spoiler alert we're getting into this territory with brawl in cell block 99 there's no way I can discuss it without letting you know what happens. Tune out, check the movie, come back, hit pause. It's up to you. Or if you don't give a fuck, we're going to keep trucking. Once Bradley's inside, doing the time for the crime that he committed, he's given an ultimatum. And this is where morals and standards and, and who people are and, and the difference between these characters truly comes into play. Is Bradley is put on a job. He has to pick up drugs. In the midst of that, the police show up. A graphic shootout takes place, and he decides to allow the police officers to live because, I mean, really, they were just responding. They were given a tip. They knew something was going to happen. Nobody needed to die that day, and it's not the type of guy he is. He is given a, a bit of a lighter sentence because he saved the life of two police officers. Given seven years, goes to prison. 
his daughter's going to be born in like 80, 90 days. There's a countdown throughout the movie that kind of gives you this false bit of hope that there's going to be a bed of roses at the end of this and everything's going to work out okay, but it doesn't. Spoilers, right? I said that. I'm allowed to say that? All right. By this act of heroics, Bradley costs the man whose drugs this was going to $3 million. So obviously there's got to be a form of revenge here. The Friends of Eddie Coyle is a crime drama movie, and it definitely has the pacing and the, the feeling of a 60s and 70s crime drama movie, which is something that is, funnily enough, uh, often attempted to be replicated now, even to the extent of guys like Quentin Tarantino, and I definitely say certainly the, the entire career of Guy Ritchie is trying to make movies like Get Carter and, and, you know, for the American essence, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, but Yates was... um was English, so, I mean, you can, I guess, consider it. It's an American crew, but an, an, an English film. I mean, it, it takes place in Boston for all intents and purposes. I really think it's an American movie. I think, you know, Peter would have considered it the same thing. But uh, just, you know, referencing, like, Get Carter, that's a, or the Italian job, too. You know, it's got a very, very British feel. There's a bit of dry humor between the dialogue. It, it's very coarse between British jargon and like with the Friends of Eddie Coyle, you've got a lot of uh, Boston terms and colloquial terms between uh, establishing that these characters are just kind of people. And that's something that I think is uh, replicated, you know, constantly, but it, it's just, it's never as tight. And something like uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 manages to uh, capture a lot of that. It has a lot of the same similar pacing when it comes to quick-driven, sarcastic, and bitter dialogue, especially delivered um, uh, from, from Vince Vaughn. I mean, most of his character isn't a bastard. And uh, what is intriguing is you might not agree with what he's doing or why he's in the situation, but I think most people can kind of put themselves in Bradley's situation and uh, would hope that they would act as he does. And, you know, just trying to characterize this again, like I referenced with Vince Vaughn, you wouldn't normally think him in a, a character role as dramatic or intense as this or something that would be graphic. And, and this movie certainly is an exploitation film. And it's an exploitation film in the sense of, you know, prison fucking exploitation. This is a raw 42nd Street movie, but it's dressed up, and it's dressed up like Sam Peckinpah. You know, uh, it, it's got this absolutely gorgeous pacing to it, and I think it referenced uh, earlier, or might have been cut, who knows, the director of this movie made a Western, and, you know, we were we were divulging and going into the, the difference of Western movies and if you like them or who gives a shit about them. And Robert Mitchum's earlier career, uh, Zaylor made Bone Tomahawk, and, uh, again, a movie with absolutely exquisite pacing and pretty impeccable violence. It is formidably an exploitation movie. And, like, like Bone Tomahawk uh, leans more into the Western genre, and so, you know, you've got to take that title with it. And I think a lot of people will avoid it because of that. And, you know, Kurt Russell made Tombstone. So you've got that in your head and you see him and something like that idea. But it, it truly is an exploration into uh, a more subtle nature of exploitation. And, you know, you, you can appreciate things like Neon Demon, which I think are very subtle exploitation films. Or you can go into a little bit more realistic and like I had referenced with the, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, realism playing such a, a fantastic part into what makes that movie pleasurable. 
something like Brawl in Cell Block 99 and Bone Tomahawk or uh, Dragged Across Concrete, all of Zaylor's films, they have this just bitter realism that uh, allows you to put some disbelief ideas away. And what I mean by that is truly the exploitation aspect of things. And why I keep referencing this movie as an exploitation aspect, or an exploitation film rather, is because once Bradley is sent to prison, he has caused $3 million worth of damage to this drug cartel. So they kidnap his wife. They kidnap his wife, and they get Udo Kier to come and tell him that they've hired a Korean abortionist who can cut the baby's limbs off while in utero and have it born with these particular problems, you know, completely limbless, like that worm guy that lit his own cigarette in Todd Browning's movie Freaks. Horrifying, right? Absolutely horrifying. But it's a bit of an exploitation angle. I mean, that, that completely should put you in disbelief. A Korean abortionist? That's the villain? That's the bad guy, a Korean abortionist. And of course, it's Udo Kier that represents it because, I mean, what a better way to throw such a ludicrous aspect into the movie. Uh, what, what a better way to present such uh, uh, madness than Udo Kier. You know, the guy that fucked a pancreas and it turned into Frankenstein? That guy. You've got to fuck the life into the pancreas! We got a Peter Boyle movie, but the Frankenstein reference came out of Udo Kier. So this absolute uh, nonsense is is introduced into the movie, and you've got to, you know, you got to question what's going on. And I guess this is where a lot of people, and where, you know, when I read reviews, when I talk to other people, uh, I, Alexander Nash, for example, where a lot of people had problems with the movie is, uh, well, that's just ridiculous. That's just ridiculous. I, and I, I don't know, There's there's some things I question. And a lot of the times I want deeper backstories or uh, better driven characters. But in a situation like this, this is really one of the last things that I'm going to question. That you are delivered all of this bizarrity with enough realism that it, it just manages to work. And a lot of it is driven directly through Vince Vaughn and his performances. Bradley and, and you know a guy that has absolute control over his anger but at the same time just doesn't. And is this chaotic massive force... And a lot of it, like I had referenced earlier, comes down to his humor and the delivery uh, of which his humor is presented in. It's something that I think, characteristically, most people would want themselves to be like. I think you can see you wanting to be uh, as clever and sharp and fast as somebody like Bradley, and that helps you uh, identify with the character. So, you know, we go back to that aspect of, He's done something bad that doesn't make him a bad person. Bad people don't necessarily identify or are identified by doing bad things, but we've established he's a somewhat shady guy you might kind of be able to get behind. I think you can sympathize a lot more with Bradley than you can with Eddie Coyle, and you can right off the bat because his anger and his frustration and his display of the anger isn't self-centered it's not a survival story for him it's not a matter of him wanting the white picket fence and a better life but it's the situation that he was put into and he wanted it to be the best that it could be for everybody involved not just him keep saying that him 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 so this is where the crossroads is split in between both movies you get to a point in the Friends of Eddie Coyle that you understand he is going to have to go to prison unless he can come up with some good words for himself when he goes to court. 
Now we go into Bradley's situation. He he's fucked. He's gonna serve the seven years no matter what. That's what his sentence was. But now there's a Korean abortionist and Udo Kier and uh, obviously some situations at foot. He's got to get himself transferred to a maximum facility penitentiary and find a specific guy and kill them. That's the cost. That's what's going to get this Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Malaysian, Myanmar? Uh, I don't think it was Myanmar. Korean. Korean. Korean abortionist off and save his wife. He knows he's still damned, and he's got to deal with this situation. This isn't a, I'm going to get out of jail, and everything's going to be perfect, and we're going to have that white picket fence and that dream. It's making the situation better. Because other people are involved in it. There are so many strings. There's waves. There's, I mean, even like your own human body. It's not just like bone and organs inside. There's tissue. There are ligaments. There's fat. There are all these different layers that are causing these things to to move and to work. And when you ignore one of them or when you allow one of them to go into fault and not pay attention to it, everything can collapse because of you being a dumb fuck. A selfish dumb fuck. You can't just take that. You know, survival is more than me, you. Survival has a, a bigger meaning to its definition, and I guess truly in the extent that I'm trying to discuss between these two people is Eddie's inability to look at the bigger picture. And right off the bat, you're allowed and, and, and shown... Bradley sees the bigger picture. Bradley sees the bigger picture overwhelmingly clear because he knows right off the bat nothing's going to go good for him. He's got to fucking deal with it. And that's that's life. I mean, you just got to fucking deal with it. And just because something awful happened, it happened, though. You can't keep focusing on it. It happened. If you can just register and deal with the fact that it happened and then figure out what the now is going to be, then maybe you can get the tomorrow in line. Eddie just was focusing on what the fuck's gonna happen to me. Bradley understood that there is a bigger picture at hand here, so he goes into overdrive. Some of the most decadent, exquisite scenes of modern violence, and what I truly love about Brawl and Cell Block 99, is uh, there's a massive lack of blood when it comes to this violence. And uh, in The Friends of Eddie Quill, I think there's only one scene that graphically displays blood. I think it's the only scene where somebody truly... Uh, is wrongfully killed. So the blood, uh, the color itself, is very representative of, of what's going on and the emotion of the scene. But for the most part, the violence in Brawl and Subblock 99 is is just... It, it, it's explicit in uh, uh, just a wonderful taste of, of actual real effects. You know, there's not any CGI. There's bone-popping punching sounds but you know for the most part it's 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 dummies and effects and Vince Vaughn terrifically kicking ass and that's something let's segue uh you know we were, we were talking about earlier um you know you this this idea where you you understand or, or think about an actor a certain way and with Robert Mitchum most people think about him as a western actor a cowboy a black hat kind of guy uh, a black hat meaning you know and, and if you go back and look at old cowboy movies all the bad guys wore black, all the good guys wore white, and he mostly played a black hat. Um, 
Vince Vaughn's a, a comedic actor, and I think most people recognize him in that asset of of being a comedic actor. And so when you see him committing these uh, just absolutely beautiful acts of violence, you just you, you kind of find it hard to believe it's it's really him. But if you take some time and appreciate um, Zayler and 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 the intricacies behind this movie, it's somewhat like Buster Keaton. You know, if you uh, follow his action. It always shows Buster in full frame, so you can understand and see that it's Buster, and you can follow and and un, you know recognize it's not a stunt guy. When you're watching Brawl in Cell Block ninety nine, make sure to pay close attention to Vince himself because that's him. I mean, it's a mixture of like jujitsu and uh you know boxing from uh, earlier in his life, but. What needs to be taken in consideration is the prowess of an actor and him falling into that role. That's not Vince Vaughn. That's Bradley. So what we're dealing with now is the survival of 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 these two people. Bradley isn't even acknowledging or dealing with his survival or what's going to happen to him. He's already head-butted his way into hell. And Vince Vaughn's powerhouse performance truly is defining and it, it's just so exquisite and and fun to be able to see people in roles that you don't particularly see them in because you know it's not like it was an effeminate role for Robert Mitchum and I stated that earlier but it's just such a difference it's such a an odd thing to see him almost be submissive and by the end of the movie it's so displeasing what happens to him and it's not that you were really even cheering for eddie in the first place but you didn't you followed this guy the entire time you don't want something bad to happen to what what's going on and and the story almost tricks you into to, to having an essence of hope and brawl and cell lock 99 it, it just continuously tricks you i mean it just keeps pulling it because you have this idea maybe in the hope of what you see in bradley and like I had mentioned, there's some cleverness, the wit, the, the, the quickness. You can have a hope behind Bradley because he didn't want anything uh, out of line. He didn't want anything ridiculous, and nor did Eddie Coyle, but the way he went about wanting these things just it wasn't the right way. It was selfish. Uh, Bradley, you can truly think uh, in a humanistic idea, was a man that cared very little about himself. Uh, a very Christ-like figure, and Braun Sublock 99, I guess, really uh, breaking it down, it has a little bit, a little bit. I mean, it's a very Judaic, it's a very Christ-like thing. I mean, he really is sacrificing himself for the birth of, uh, you know, something pure, something better, something that will be given a better chance. And then, again, you know, you have the representation of the massive cross on the back of Bat Bradley's head, the unlocked cell phone number at the end of the movie is 777. There is some uh, intricacies to um, Zayler as a director, and, you know, I, that's not really what I want to talk about. You know, th there's a lot of, and like I, I've said at the very, very beginning of this, you know, these are movies that we could do again. Nash and I can talk about. Uh, there's a lot of different angles, but what I really wanted to focus on was the the, the characters was... Bradley and Eddie and these two very similar but not people and uh, you know the difference of survival and surviving and, and the intricacies and, and maze-like labyrinth that uh, can, can really be the definition of the word survival because in the long run both of these people did the exact same thing but the actions and the reactions are, are just absolutely different. So I think where we left off uh, with Bradley is he has to go into, you know, uh, the worst 
maximum security awful prison that he can get into to kill this guy. And he gets inside, and again, just exquisite, wonderful scenes of very well-executed violence. He finally finds out that it's a setup, and it's been a setup the entire time. Here is where a a very interesting character is brought into play, and uh, I guess there is a transition between two of these characters with the Friends of Eddie Coyle, because you've got the Peter Boyle character, who I established as the bar owner, the guy that Eddie actually got in trouble working for, the reason he's going to prison. Then you've got Jackie Brown, the young gun runner. In Brawl and Cell Block 99, you have a exquisitely badass performance from the amazing Don Johnson. I love Don Johnson. Um, a Boy and His Dog's probably, God, like top five favorite movies. I mean, it's I mean, and that's young Don Johnson. That's that's going way back. But um, I sympathize with the guy, and I I have a lot of rooting for him. I think he has a lot of power as an actor, and because of actions and things that he did earlier in life a lot of people don't consider him a good guy for the job and i think that's a little bullshit don johnson for your appreciation ladies and gentlemen fucking don johnson this is a a a great role for him and it, it it brings up a really cool question of what's a good guy and what is a bad guy because, I mean, there are bad guys in this movie, and there are bad guys in The Friends of Eddie Coyle, but uh, something we've been discussing this entire show, you do things, you do a bad job, it doesn't make you a bad guy. That idea. Um, Eddie's not really a bad guy, Bradley's not really a bad guy, and you've got these other characters like Jackie Brown. He's not really a bad guy either. He's, he's doing bad things, and he's representing bad things. But as a whole, that doesn't make him a a bad person. We don't even really know anything about him. Peter Boyle's character, on the other hand, is a fucking rat. And I don't know, maybe it's a little street of me, but a rat's a fucking rat. And and its survival had a different format, though, so we can even add that into the chain of the different types of survival. Because look at what Eddie, or Eddie, look at what Peter Boyle's doing over here. He even is trying to keep fucking trucking. That's all the story is, man, and that's all she wrote, because that's what it is for all of us. Uh, from reality, Boston crime dramas, going to prison, movies, obviously, you know, or going to work, or going to the gas station, or, or whatever chore you have to do the grocery store. There's all a level of monotony that uh, is just a, a format. There's a format to everything, and whether you like it or not, sometimes there has to be a grade that is met with inside of that format. Not everybody ends up meeting it, and that's where you know we again find ourselves with Eddie and Bradley because Eddie he won't meet the grade as to where Bradley has completely understood it and and knows what's going to happen to him. So he's found himself in this dark, dismal place, and it's a setup. It's a fucking trap. Who's good? Who's bad? What is a bad guy? What's Jackie doing that's so bad? Jackie Brown is making a living. He's selling machine guns. It's uh, questionable. But he's he's working. Uh, he, he's just trying to get by. You're not shown that any of these people are specifically awful or, or doing anything to be awful. The warden runs a tight ship, and that's like the first statement when you get to meet him. You, you've got this idea that there are villains and that opposition is, is, is villainhood and that an opposing force that you meet in your life is going to be a villain. And that's not necessarily how everything is. An opposing force just may be that. An opposing force, not everything is, is evil. Not everything is absolutely against you. So when Bradley has to come up against this 
what he recognizes is he's got to get to the bottom of it. And he isn't aware that he's been set up. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to get too deep into the story because I, I feel, you know, you, the audience, should be able to sit down and enjoy this on your own without me having to explain it or completely uh, break it down or condense it in any other way. But he meets an uphill battle when the Don Johnson, the amazing DJ, Madman Don Johnson. When Don Johnson is uh, introduced, you have this idea of villainy, and you're presented this idea of villainy incorrectly with Jackie Brown and the friends of Eddie Coyle as to where it's more or less the Peter Boyle character, and obviously there's a representing force that is behind all of these bad things happening to Bradley in Brawl, so... That character, who is established, I mean, again, avoiding a lot of plot points, the character, uh, the villainy, the Peter Boyle, I guess you could say, is established already in this film and, and later is what the brawl in Cell Block 99 accumulates uh, into. But eh, they don't even matter as much because when you have something like the Friends of Eddie Coyle, that character plays into almost the chess-like maneuvers of what's happening in this movie as to where Brawl and Cell Block 99, all the plays had already been made. It's just the last one that wasn't calculated. And that's where the excitement and the true absolution of uh, what I consider exploitation comes into play because the movie ends with just, ah, a beautiful display of violence, a beautiful display of pain and emotion, some some fantastic R&B. You've got a heartfelt, wrapped-around ending, and everything that you wanted out of the Friends of Eddie Coyle is presented here. And the problem is Eddie Coyle is the, the, the absolute realism, the bitter shit-in-one-hand-wish-in-the-other. Brawl in Cell Block 99 has a dreamlike hope. And not always is that hope uh, representative in your life. And I know if you've seen the movie, you're thinking, Hank, the fuck are you talking about? I've seen the end of this movie. Where's the hope? The hope is the idea of the two different types of survival. It's not always about you. It's not always about you surviving. There's a bigger picture to things. There are other people that are involved in every aspect of your life. So when you talk about surviving, what do you mean? I mean, surviving for you, surviving until tomorrow, making tomorrow better. I mean, you got to get behind these two fluencies uh, to really get, uh, I guess, the the gestures that I think complement each other with these two movies. And as I raved about at the beginning of the show, what makes a double feature, what makes a perfect double feature is movies that absolutely can complement themselves and mesh into each other. And continue the story. You can end and then begin all anew. And with the Friends of Eddie Coyle, and I stress this needs to be the first movie in your double feature. The Friends of Eddie Coyle presents a dismal but realistic display of hope and dreams, right, wrong, moral standards and survival. As does Cell Block 99. But what you're given, and why I think Brawl and Cell Block 99 almost ends up being a more powerful movie is the hope, man. There's just a fantastical idea behind not mattering. And when you get to the end of The Friends of Eddie Coyle, you realize, well, he dies. Shit. And when you get to the end of Brawl and Cell Block 99, he does. He Bradley dies. Pretty triumphantly, but he does meet his dismal end. 
it's not hopeless. It wasn't it wasn't a death, it was a rebirth. It was Christ like in its own essence of continuing hope. And there's something to uh to be felt. There's something to uh, to yell out toward that's 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 a, uh, an ending worth clapping you know it, it's a clap worth ending it's achievement there was a message delivered a little bit differently neither here nor there between the two movies but i believe broad cell block 99 has a hopeful thought in the midst of its violence and its chaotic nature i think there is something eloquent but very very beautiful at the end of the day and i think bradley definitely is a christ-like character and you look at representations of jesus in cinema things like the last temptation of christ it's a great performance but you have something like this angry person that's just trying to let love in i like that one a little bit more i didn't think we'd get weirdly religious at the end of this and compare Brawl and Cell Block 99 to The Last Temptation of Christ. But at the same time, we went from Howard Hawks to Jim Jarmusch in like 14 seconds at the beginning of the show. So, fuck it. We can go anywhere and everywhere on reading Hank Bow? Oh, yeah. Oh, there, yeah, see, that's the gimmick. Reading Hank Bow. Can we do that? So, what does that leave us with? Where are we at? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I've given it away. Both of these characters meet very bitter endings. But I think, if anything, you made it to the end of this first effort uh, of a solo show from Hank, the world's greatest Hollywood howling mad... What are we calling me this week? It doesn't matter. What you've got is an exploration of two different characters, two different ideas, two different concepts, but at the same time, you've got two films that are very comparable both uh, with, with their style, and, and as I was referencing with British crime dramas from the, the late 60s and 70s and, and the feeling between those two, it's not like Braun Cell Block 99 has an overextension of that or is trying to be anything that it's not. One of the things that is, is fantastic about Zayler as a director is his just level of... I mean, it, it truly is his style, but it's his level of shooting. He, he presents a, a very accurate depiction of what needs to be seen, and he is also a very exquisite writer. So those two things together add a very delicate layer to uh, the, the final product because when, when writing and, and directing and production and, and producing and cutting and sound and all that garbage meets in, in one place and you can really fucking connect with it you can do something incredibly powerful but a lot of people seem to be opposed to i guess uh the level of realism zayler shows within his films that uh, you know I've, I've heard it be called drab and it gets a bit boring and the pacing is off and there's something with like the friends of eddie coyle the the, the pacing at the beginning of the movie is is very very slow and it transgresses anxiety wise the tension begins to add you've got the very first bank robbery scene and you begin to get the idea that everything is scheduled, everything has a place, everything. And as it does, and as I referenced earlier, everything in life, uh, in jobs, in work, everything does have a place. Everything has a, an organization. Everything has a, a format. And you get that feeling as you watch them rob that first bank that they've done this before. They have a format. They have a place. They understand uh, what's going on. 
and you get the second bank robbery, you you just slowly start waiting for something bad to happen because obviously a gun has been put on scene. You know something bad's going to happen. Uh, God, we said we weren't going to get deep into the, the plot aspects, but here we are just driving further into the Friends of Eddie Coyle. All right. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't know how this is. I don't know what you'll think about it. You, the loving audience, my audience, thank you. Thank you so much for being my audience. And it's not your fault no one reads anymore. I do recommend checking out The King of Marvin Garden, though. Anything I reference, write it down, check it out. We're going to babble. We're going to get out of control. This is the Death by DVD with Hank show. So what's in the name? What's in the title? What's in a double feature? What's a show? What's what? What's the matter with me? What's the matter with you? What's the matter with matter? Alright, this is it. This is the end. In the long run, I hope I allowed a, uh, you know, I hope I allowed a provocative new outlook on two movies and a commentary that will enhance the viewing experience. Or some shit. And, you know, maybe open your outlook on, uh, you know, maybe, like, perception and, and trial and error and trying and survival. I don't know where this is going. Maybe the moral of the story is sometimes you get shot in the head. I don't know. The ashtray is full. Pleasant tomorrows. Until next time. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.